Turn your Bibles to Psalm 78 this evening. Psalms chapter 78. Psalms chapter number 78. Are you excited to be in the house of the Lord tonight? I hope that you are. I'm excited to be here, excited for what God's going to do. Psalms chapter 78. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Psalm 78, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 8. The Bible says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. It might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the Word of God. Pray that Christ would be magnified through everything that's said and done. And I pray that real work would be done in our lives and that we'd yield ourselves more wholly unto you. Father, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, the other day I was talking to my wife about the scriptures and she began to talk to me about the uh, ladies' prayer meeting. She was talking about some of the things that she taught on and uh, she taught out of the 78th Psalm. You know, my wife's a pretty good preacher. Amen. And uh, I was listening to some of the things that she was sharing, and I, I began to think about that passage of Scripture. And, you know, it's, a, it's one of the longer psalms in the book of Psalms. And it takes the reader upon a story of testimony of the goodness and greatness of God. When you read a little further, we didn't read this, but we'll take the time now. Look with me at verse 9 down to verse 12. It, it sort of begins this watershed moment in the thought that the psalmist has. He says, The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and His wonders that He had showed them. Marvelous things did He in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. Now, you could continue, and I encourage you, in fact, to do that later on in your own time. Read the entirety of this psalm, long though it may be. It won't take you but a few moments. And you'll find that there is a theme throughout this psalm. And it all centers around this notion of a people and their responsibility that have seen God's marvelous, wonderful works. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the fact that God has done great things in your life brings about a responsibility upon you and upon me. We can't see the things we've seen and not respond in light of them. We can't hear the things we've heard and not be judged in light of it. We can't have tasted and seen how good the Lord is and not be held to account for what we do with that truth. And the psalmist is talking about the responsibilities, the obligations, and the powerful testimony of those that have seen God's wonderful works. Can I just, before I preach tonight, can I say I've seen God do some wonderful works. 
Things that had to have been God that did it because it was beyond the reach of man to coordinate, orchestrate, and accomplish the things that have happened. I've seen God heal bodies that were broken. I've seen Him mend marriages beyond hope. I've seen Him rescue children that seem to be beyond the farthest end of the far country. I've seen God save sinners that even though we know salvation is powerful to do it, if we were to be honest, we would have said, there's no chance they'll ever get saved. And I've seen God save people like that. I've seen Him take and restore my soul in times of despair, depression, and grief. I've, I've walked with Him and seen Him minister to me and comfort me in such a palpable way that it's as though He was standing in the same room, hand on my shoulder to comfort me in those moments. Hey, I've seen Him give me encouragement and strength when I was weary beyond going and beyond belief and beyond help. I've seen God do some wonderful things. The fact that I've seen those things, that changes and transforms my life. I can't live the way I lived before then. And you understand, I ain't just talking about getting saved. I'm talking about every day that God works in your life. You can't live like you did the day before God did that. You can't just see God work miracles and do amazing, remarkable things and then expect to be able to walk around in rife and rank ignorance. No, friend, listen. God's done amazing things in your life and you're going to have to live in the strength of what He's done. And so the psalmist is dealing with with this responsibility, this weight, this burden that is placed upon the shoulders of them that have seen His wonderful works. And I want you to notice in our text this evening three things that he deals with regarding this responsibility. Notice number one, he deals with their duty in light of having seen God's wonderful works. He begins in verse number one by saying this, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Can I say this, if God saved your soul and God's worked mightily in your life, and I bet probably everybody in this room would give testimony that He has. I, I bet probably everybody in this room would say God's done amazing things in my life. Can I say your first duty is this? It's to listen to God's Word. It's amazing. You know, we have a tendency, no matter how many times somebody's proved right, we find a way to dismiss the wise counsel that they so often give. And how doubly true is that of God Himself? Doesn't it stand to reason you understand that the Word of God is the means through which God exercises His power in this world? When He chose to create this world, He did so through the Word of God. He spoke it into existence. And all throughout Scriptures, it is taught to us that the Word of God has power intrinsic to it. Why is that? Because the Word of God, listen, it does not just observe truth, it, it literally creates truth. If God was to say the sky's green, it'd turn green. If God was to say that oxygen was, was flame, it, it'd catch on fire. I mean, I'm saying God's Word is a powerful thing. And the very fact that God has done these things in your life, it's because He has done so through His Word, and that then places upon our shoulders the responsibility to listen to God's Word. He, we need to place ourselves under the clear, concise, and, 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 and strong preaching of the Word of God. But not only that, we need to, in our own time, listen to the truth of God's Word as we study His Word, as we, as we fall in love with our Bible, as we give ear to His law. To say give ear to means to listen to. And your duty certainly is to listen 
to God's word. But then there's a second thing. He says this, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'd say this, one, it's to listen to God's word. But second, our duty is to lean in to God's word. I found this to be true, particularly in the raising of children. Children have the best hearing of anyone, but uh, it is sometimes attuned to what they want to hear. And uh, we don't lose that ability when we become adults, amen? We just legitimately don't hear as much as we used to as well, amen? And we got, we got more excuse for it. But to incline the ears is not a redundancy. What the scripture writer is saying here is he's saying, first off, you ought to listen. But second, you ought to listen real good. To incline one's ear is to lean in that they might get a better perspective and perception of the sound that's being given. The image is of one that has cupped their ear and leaned in close, that they might not miss a single word of what's spoken, and that they might hear it rightly, truly, and personally. I say we are a gospel-rich, Bible-rich people in the day we're living in. You have more access to Bible preaching than any generation throughout human history. I'm not just talking about having a pastor that gets up and preaches at you. But technology has placed at our disposal. I'm talking about some of the great giants of old, scripturally speaking. But then also many men of God walking the earth today that likewise have a touch of God on their life. And we're going to one day be held to account for what we've done with that level of access to Bible preaching. We ought to be the most biblically literate generation throughout all of human history. We have more at our disposal than we've ever had before. But here's the problem. We have taken and gutted Bible preaching of the personal touch that it requires to move hearts and to shape lives. We listen. We hear the noise. We're exposed to it. But when a person gives ear to something, they're saying, that's for me and I need to hear every word. Can I tell you what will change your life? If you'll start sitting under preaching like this. If you'll start sitting under preaching and saying, boy, I wonder who that's for. And start saying, you know, a thrice holy, sovereign, providential, omniscient God put me sitting in this pew in this service. And there must be a reason for it. There must be a cause behind it. And it might not be that that, that every single thing that's said just shakes my timbers. But there'll be something in this message for me or God wouldn't have me here tonight. To give ear to the truth of God's Word. It's to yield yourself and lend yourself. It's to not make God's Word an instrument for your benefit, but it's rather to make yourself an instrument for the effectual working of the Word of God in your life. It's to view yourself as the field that needs to be plowed, to view yourself as the desert that needs to be watered, to view yourself as the crop that needs to be reaped. It's to say not it's another's, but rather to lean in and say, ooh, I need to hear that. That's for me personally. I'd say we have a bad habit of leaning away from God's Word, trying to find every which way that it's not the Holy Ghost ringing our bell. I've had them them conversations with him. They're pretty one-sided because he just keeps telling me the same thing that I know to be true. And I keep giving him all the reasons why he must have gotten the wires crossed. And he actually means the guy that sits over in that section and not me. 
And what silliness that is in our life that we would do such a thing. But you know, when we argue with the Holy Ghost, we're leaning away from God's Word. God's reaching out to us with, and we're reach, we're leaning away from it. I remember as a young man, and this is not any kind of credential for super spirituality, but it is, it is my experience. I remember as a 15 year old boy, I don't know why, I guess God was just doing something special in my heart, but I made up my mind that I was going to go to church and I was going to listen to every sermon and I was going to try to hear God in it. That I was going to try to hear something for me and for my life personally. I want you to understand something. I grew up under a pastor. He was, uh, at that time, he was in his late 70s and uh, that pastor, he was a real man of God. I love him. He was precious to me and I was very, very close with him. But he also, you get to a place in life, I've heard my parents say this before about growing old. They said this when they was young. But they said, you know, you get to a place in life where everything reminds you of a story. Everything you see, everything you hear, everything that you experience, it reminds you of a story. Then you get to a place in life, you forget which stories you've told and which you haven't. And so every time you see that thing, you forget that you ain't tell you that you've told that story about that before. And, and my pastor, I mean, he was a man of God, but he, he was also, he was an aged man of God. And he could be a hard person for a 15-year-old kid to listen to. I mean, it's very easy. I'm not saying he's mean. I'm not saying he's rough. I'm saying it would have been real easy to check out. And I had done that for a lot of years, like most kids do. I, I, let, let me have little ones listen to me for just a few moments. You know that that you can get as much out of Bible preaching as these adults can. You can get as much out of it as they can. The same, if you're saved, the same Holy Ghost that lives in these adults lives in you, and you can get just as much out of it as they can. And I remember as a young man going into the house of God and sitting down and, and, and just saying, I'm going to listen to hear the voice of God. And you know what? I heard it. First Sunday, I heard it. Second Wednesday, I heard it. The second Sunday, I heard it. And service after service and sermon after sermon, I heard it over and over and over and over again. As God began to mold and to shape my life, to convict my heart, to make Himself known and real to me. Say, so what happened, preacher? Well, that's the difference between leaning away from His Word and leaning into His Word. Saying, God, what do you have to say to me in what's being preached? What's their duty? Well, it's to listen to God's Word. I'm feeling pretty good now. It's to lean into God's Word. But then notice this, it's to learn God's Word. Verse 2 says this, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Now, this is prophetic. It's a messianic verse dealing with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've just noticed simply this. It's not merely that we might be impacted by the Word of God, but it is likewise that we might learn it aright and know the truth of it. Every one of us is a student of the Bible. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. That's our goal. Every single one of us ought to be approaching the Bible saying, I don't know it all. I need to know and learn more. It is amazing to me. And I, again, I by no means arrived and I don't, I'm not, I'm not holding myself up as some sort of example of, 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 of scriptural knowledge by any stretch. Really, the opposite's true. It, but I've been in this thing now. I mean, preaching for, I don't know, uh, 15 years, I suppose. And, and it's amazing to me how often I can go to well-worn passages in my Bible and see things that I never saw before. And it hadn't changed. I mean, it's the same as it always was. 
But I mean, we ought to always be learning, always be learning, always be learning. It ought to be our life's passion and our life's pursuit to know and to understand the Word of God. You understand that Satan has enslaved generations of people by convincing them they can't know the Bible. And men have literally died so that you could have a Bible you could read, so that you could learn the Bible. How can we, God, having done all that in our lives, how can we treat this book as a dusty, out-of-date, irrelevant thing? as some technical manual that has to be explained to us through someone with more education than us. God forbid that should be our attitude about the Bible. Uh, instead, we ought to look at it as daily bread. It's what the Bible calls it. It's daily bread. It's daily bread. We ought to go to it day by day and seek to learn it, to understand it. There's not a single thing in this book. There might be things that you'll never really sort out till you get to heaven but no one has some some super secret intrinsic level of wisdom or knowledge beyond what you can understand. You can know the Bible. You can learn the Bible. And the fact that we have a Bible, it is incumbent upon us to learn the Bible. Of all of the great blessings and benefits that I mentioned a moment ago with access to various different scriptural resources, you know the greatest of all of them is this King James Bible. I don't know if you're aware of this, but for many long years, God's people had to live without having a completed Bible between between leather cover that they could just hold in their hand and read. I mean, it is it is one of the utmost... How do I say this? We are going to be held preeminently responsible and accountable for, if nothing else, this one simple truth that we have the preserved Word of God. We have access to I mean, man, I, listen, we have a duty. What is it? To listen to God's Word, to lean into God's Word, to learn God's Word. He speaks about the duty of them that have seen God's wonderful works. But then number two, he talks about the testimony of them that have seen His wonderful works. You could add in this word the responsibility that they have. What should we do in light of that? Well, he says in verse 4, I like this, we will not hide them. What is the them that he's talking about? Well, he has been speaking in verse 3 about truths of the Word of God and about the testimony of God's working. He says uh, about uh, parables and dark sayings of old in verse 2, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. And then he says, we will not hide them from their children. Now, again, this is messianic and this is speaking about Christ ministering to the nation of Israel. But it moves beyond that into the practical realm of our life. He says, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. We have a duty and a responsibility, not just to God, but also to a coming generation. And what is that that responsibility? Well, it's to have a testimony of what God's done in our life. Notice three things here that are involved with that testimony. That testimony, number one, involves displaying His works. He says, we will not hide them from the children. It's amazing the language that the Holy Ghost uses here. He doesn't say we'll not neglect to mention them. He doesn't say we'll not be private about them. But He uses this strong a language, we will not hide them from a generation to come from their children. I don't know if you realize this, but God having done what He's done in our life, we have a responsibility to declare that work and that truth to the lives of others. 
And if we do not, it is a crime against God in heaven and against that generation to come. It's always funny, and this, I guess, has been the case, time immemorial, that as as people age in life and as they begin to, to gather wisdom and they see the folly that is youth and that is young age and, and the lack of wisdom, I guess it's always been true that as people grow older, they lament the foolishness and folly of youth. But can I remind you, hey, listen, if that younger generation is a mess, it's the older generation that raised them to it. Oh, that's okay. You're still with me, aren't you? You was with me a second ago. You're still with me, aren't you? You wouldn't bow up over a hard truth, would you? The fact of the matter is, we look at people and they in their life are a mess. And we have to acknowledge, if they're ours, that we've had some contributing factor to it. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, we have a responsibility. We are we are sinning against a generation to come if we are not bold in our proclamation of what God has done in our life. If they grow up thinking God's dead, it's because we didn't show Him alive to them. If they grow up thinking He don't care, it's because we showed Him cold-hearted to them. If they grow up thinking that He's powerless, it's because we showed them Him powerless. The fact is, you and I get to shape, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but we get to shape the perspective that a coming generation has on God. Can I tell you this? Parents, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Your children will gain an understanding of God through the way that you parent them. You should be deliberate as you parent them. Times when you must show justice towards them, you ought to emphasize that we have a just God, and that's why it's right to show justice. Times when you show mercy and grace, and let me say, parents, there ought to be times you show mercy. If for no other reason than just to illustrate the mercy and grace of God. There's been times I've looked at my child and said, by all the rights, you deserve discipline. But I'm going to show grace to you. And here's why I'm showing grace to you. Because I want you to understand that God in heaven shows grace towards us. I'm going to have mercy on you right now. You don't deserve that mercy. But I'm going to have mercy on you the same way that God has mercy upon us. We are showing and shaping and teaching them who God is, how He lives and how He behaves. This is why the primary institution in God's dealings with man has always been and will always be and is today the home. It's the source and seat of instruction in a person's life. And that's where a child is trained up in the way that they should go. And as such, hey, listen, it's our responsibility to display His works. You want your child to know God's alive? Let him see God living through you. Talk often of what God has done. Brag loudly of how good God is. And let them see you live for Christ. It's to display His works. Notice number two, it's to declare His wonders. He says, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. You know, it's interesting. I remember hearing somebody years ago, I can't remember who told this story, but they were talking about, uh, I believe it was Dr. Oliver B. Green that was telling this story, and he was just sort of giving a, a post-mortem on what had happened in churches in America. And he was talking about how that, you know, uh, after the, the, how do I, uh, after the modernism, 
after the, the, the uh, biblical attacks of the early 1900s, and there was, uh, all millennialism really took root in the early 1900s. They believed we were going to evangelize our way into the kingdom. What changed that? Well, World War I changed that. They were under the guise and notion there had just been, you know, World Fair in Chicago, great technological wonders, uh, electricity being pumped throughout all of... And they started to think, hey, we are on an upward trajectory and we're going to just keep on going until Jesus comes and sits in Jerusalem. Then World War I hit. One of the ugliest, most brutal wars in the history of any nation. A war of inches in attrition. And that disabused many of the all-millennials. And it was followed soon after by the Great Depression and, and by economic hardship and difficulty in World War II then following. And God was, giving, uh, God was giving a lesson to mankind, reminding them how much they needed Him. And on the heels of that, modernism had taken a real hit to its movement. Modernism being the notion that God's Word is not perfect and inerrant. By the way, we use the term fundamental or fundamentalism. That's rooted in a series of papers that was published by a group of doctrinally sound men called the Fundamentals of Our Faith to try to combat the modernism that had become so pervasive. I'm talking about all these places, uh, you know, uh, places uh, like Princeton and places like Yale and places like Harvard that had once been seminaries and had instead become dens of iniquity and places of doubt and dis belief in the inerrancy of the Word of God. And the fundamentalists came in response to that. Men that stood up and said, we believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the bodily resurrection. We believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. We believe in salvation by grace through faith in combat to that movement. One of the interesting things that happened is then all these bad, horrible, terrible, cataclysmic events happened on the world stage, and men woke up and realized that we weren't edging our way towards a utopia, but we were spiraling downward. And this gave opportunity for men of God to stand up and to seek revival to take place in our country. And it brought back a grassroots revival and return to Bible Christianity in many ways. All of a sudden, people started to seek God, and then they started to seek God in great numbers and great companies. And you had real old-time Bible Christianity, real old-time worship. But then, as is always the case, as the church began to prosper, it also began to apostatize. And uh, Dr. Oliver B. Green was talking about how that all these churches, they, they grew big through shouting. But then they got dignified and they threw out the people that would shout. <laughs> and you come to the 50s and the 60s when once again there's a resurgence of modernism in many of those movements, and all of a sudden these places have become too dignified. It's not an accident that the sexual revolution of the 1960s, that the modern wave of, uh, of Bible perversions came at that same time in society. Why is that? As people quit declaring to the generation to come God's praises and works, society began to rot. The foundations began to be destroyed. Over and over again, this story could be told. You could go back far, far further back in, in human history and see this same cycle played out over and over and over again. I can't stress enough how important it is that you tell your kids what God does in your life. You ought to talk often about it. You want your kids to know He's alive. Talk about all the living things He does. Talk every day with your children about how good God is, about how mighty God is, about how powerful God is. 
And let it be that if they grow up to be an agnostic infidel that believes God's dead, it's not been you that's caused. Because you've told them how good and how gracious God is. Their testimony to display His works, to declare His wonders, but then to deliver His words. Verse 5 says this, For He established a testimony in Jacob. When it uses the term testimony, it's talking about the Old Testament law. We know that because he follows it up. He reiterates it. He says, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. What are the three things we ought to be teaching a generation to come? We ought to be letting them see God work in our life. We ought to be boldly declaring to them what God has done. But then we ought to be plainly teaching them what God expects of them. It's amazing the things we just assume people know. And I think that the, the, the information age has heightened this problem in society. And we're really starting, I think, to see a lot of the bad fruit that's come of that. I assumed people weren't as dumb as they are. I have been disabused of that notion. I used to think people were smarter than they were. There's been things happen over the past five years. I mean, I just, I looked at it and I thought, well, surely people know better than this and know better than that. And it's been true in the societal realm and the, in the church realm. It's been true in the political realm. And, and we just, we learned, man, we learned this. We learned that people ain't as learned as we thought they were. And it's been a startling thing. And I think there's been this assumption that's been made through society and, 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 Social media, I think, has also created this little petri dish of this problem where we can create our own little kingdom of people with our own worldview and deceive ourselves into believing that everybody sees things the same way that we see things when that is not true. I started to say a couple of years ago, I'm going to quit taking for granted that people ain't crazy because evidently people's crazy. And if we do not recognize that and, and live in the sobriety of that reality, here's what we'll do. We'll let down our guard. We'll lay down our plow and we'll quit doing what God's commanded of us. You understand, people aren't born with an inborn knowledge of God's Word. If they know God's Word, it's because it's been taught to them. It's because it's been taught to them. I was raised in a Bible-believing home in a gospel and Bible-preaching church. I know what I know today because somebody taught it to me. You know what you know because somebody taught it to you. Somebody invested in you. Somebody looked at you and said, hey, there's somebody whose life I can change and began to teach you the truths of God's Word. The fundamental place that this takes takes place is in the home, that they should make known to their children. I, I think that one of these days it's going to really hit home to some of us what we ignored and took for granted when our kids are grown and gone. We had them right there, and they ain't going to be there long. Every day we've got them right there. And if you think for one moment they're not there, just wait and have a peaceful moment and they'll show up to interrupt it. They're there. My soul, one day they won't be. You got such a little window of time, man. Such a little window of time. And you can teach them. They, they, they love you. They trust you. They may not listen to everything you want them to do, but they'll listen to the things that you say to them. We have a responsibility to deliver the truth of God's Word to them. Listen, I, it's the preacher's responsibility to preach the Word of God, 
But it ain't his job to teach your children biblical Christianity. Sunday school teacher, it's their job to teach the Word of God, no question about it. But it ain't fundamentally and primarily their job to teach your children. It's your job to teach your children. And as such, hey, listen, if you've seen him do great works, if you've seen him do great things, then understand you ought to have a testimony in light of it. Well, notice a final thing, and I'm done. Look at verse 6. Why do we do all this? This is why we do it, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. talks about the legacy of those that have seen God's wonderful works. In other words, these works, and we find this very present in the Bible. In fact, in the book of Psalms, you'll find occasion after occasion after occasion that are simply retellings of the great things that God has done. God works in a generation, but everything God does, He does it for more than one generation. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I'm saying He he may do it in a moment in time, but He ain't just doing it for that moment in time. Just as in the New Testament, Paul said about the things that happened to the Old Testament saints, that these things happened unto them for our ensample. They were written aforetime for our ensample upon whom the ends of the world come. God was doing something with them and in them, but He was also doing something for us in doing that. And as such, God always has in mind the generation to come in working in their life. Why do we do these things we've talked about? Why should we be intentional and deliberate with our testimony, particularly in our home but not limited there, all throughout the wide world? Why? Three reasons. One, that it might show them. That's what He says, isn't it? That the generation to come might Know them. We are starting to see this in society today. It's becoming a really prevalent thing. Media companies, papers, websites, journalism entities, they'll very often go in and change and, and edit and remove elements of stories they've written. Now, that's been, that's been a common thing because humans make mistakes. But here's what used to be common practice. If you did that, you put a little editorial note in there saying, hey, we came in and we made this change to. But that's going by the wayside. Instead, these companies are going in, they're changing things and not telling anybody about it. And were it not for some of the resources and tools that we have on the Internet, it'd be impossible really even to prove that they had done this thing. What are they doing? Well, they're, they're rewriting history. They're rewriting history. This is not a good faith effort to correct the record because they don't want a record. They want you to believe that it's always said that, that it's always been that way. I wonder, me and my wife were talking about this, uh, about the, the, I can't remember even what, what prompted it. We were talking about history and you know, so much of history is shaped by just a few either popular, prominent, or maybe sometimes the only extant articles on a particular thing. Our entire perspective of history, your belief about what a Roman is, is shaped on just a few things. Your perspective on what an Egyptian was like 5,000 years ago is shaped on just a handful of things. Wonder what's going to shape the next 500 years if the Lord don't come back. Wonder what's going to shape the next 1,000 years if the Lord don't come back first. I'll tell you this, we are either going to take it into our own hands to tell a godless world who God is, or we're going to leave it to a godless world to fumble about and try to figure out who He is. We're either going to tell our children the truth and show them and teach them who God is, or we're going to let a wicked, godless world tell them who God is. I think we have a responsibility 
to show them the truth of the word of God. You know, your kids, they're ignorant. They'll just believe you. I say that tongue in cheek. They love you. They trust you. They believe what you say. That's a that's a great responsibility. They believe you. You you tell them that Jesus walked on water. He walked on water. You tell them church don't matter. Church don't matter. You tell them we have a Bible. We have a Bible. You tell them we're not real sure what the Bible is. They're not real sure what the Bible is. You tell them he's coming back. He's coming back. You tell them don't worry about it. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. They'll eat, drink, and be merry. Believing tomorrow they die. We have a great responsibility. Why? That it might show them. Then number seven, verse number seven says this, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Here's, here's what our legacy is. One, that it might show them. Two, that it might shape them. That it might change the way they live their lives. One of the things I remember my father-in-law saying fondly, and I, I can't, he'd get on a kick on things and something just become sort of a, a bell that he would ring. But I remember being being a, a young person in high school, and I can't remember what the context was, but somebody had said something about brainwashing. And he looked at our class and he said, I'm trying to brainwash you. That's what he said. He said, I'm trying to brainwash you. He said, I'm trying to manipulate you. I'm trying to coerce you. I'm trying to brainwash you. He said, the world's trying to do the same thing. It's just a question of who you're going to let do it. What he meant is this, that all of our worlds are shaped by the things we encounter and the things that we learn. And it's funny, people will look at religion, they use that terminology, they'll look at Christianity and say, you're trying to brainwash people. Yeah. So are you. Now, when I say brainwash, I don't mean in the context of the world's interpretation of somehow deceiving and and trying to condition someone to believing something that's false. No, see, that's what they're doing. I'm trying to give you truth because the truth will make you free. But the point being, your children are going to get influenced by something. Hey, listen, Disney will shape them or the Bible will shape them. Television will shape them or the Bible will shape them. Music will shape them or the Bible will shape them. They're going to get shaped. But what's going to shape them? And the reason we declare the things we do of God's wonders, the reason we display His works, the reason we deliver His words is directly, intently so that we might shape them into the glory of God, the image of God. The fact of the matter is, and I've told parents this time and again, discipline in, in the home, it should be coercive. It should not just be flying out in a rage, but it should be that it might elicit a response and an obedience out of a child. You know, that's true of everything in our life. How we interact with our children should be crafted that we might show them who God is, teach them what God does, show them how God loves them, that we might shape them. Notice the final thing, and I'm done, verse number 8. Why do we do it? Well, that the generation to come might know them and that they might set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, keep His commandments. But here's another reason, a final reason we do it, that they might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Now, the psalmist here is not speaking of direct lineage and parentage when he says their fathers. 
But he's speaking about a generation that walked through the wilderness murmuring, complaining towards God and incurred the judgment and wrath of God as a, as a result. And he says, here's why we tell them. We tell them so they don't do the things that their fathers did. Let's say it this way. We do it that it might spare them. That it might spare them. That they don't make the same mistakes. That they don't walk the same path. That they don't bear the same scars and the same memories. We do it because there's a better life than the one the world wants to give them. There's a better life than what the world wants to give them. Man, the reason we do all of this, we, we do it for the glory of God. We do it to please Him. But in as much as we're raising our families and trying to glorify God in and through them, we're doing what we're doing that they might not make mistakes that don't have to be made. It's always shocked me how readily God's people will give their children to the world. I'm not talking about, listen, I understand, hey, they get to an age they might go to the far country. I understand that. It could happen to mine, just like it could happen to yours. It humbles and terrifies me to think it. But I know it's true. But I'm not talking about we can't stop them from going. I'm talking about how often that that people hand their children directly over to the influence and will and wooing of the world. And let the world shape their reality around them. Can't you see this world's burning down? Can't you see this world's broken? Why would you think you could drink from that fountain and fill your children's belly from it and not expect the same corruption and rot that is all throughout the rest of the world? We do what we do that it might spare them from those things. I'm thankful we can spare them of some things. I know they're going to make their choices. Mine are going to make their choices. But I can do everything I can to make sure they don't have to have even a moment in the far country if that's possible. Or that if they wind up there, they come home quick as they can. I don't want them to have to. Hey, listen, we have a responsibility. I've seen some things. I've probably not seen everything you've seen or as much as you've seen. But, boy, my soul, what 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 I've seen looks like a lot to me. And, and it's sure enough that I have a responsibility to take what God's done in my life and to share it with a generation to come. Preacher, my kids are all grown. Have you got grandkids? Preacher, I don't have no grandkids. Well, you probably have some kids in your life, some youngsters somewhere, some way along the way. And even if you don't, here's what you can do is pray for those that do. Love those that you interact with. And pray for this wicked and broken world because it's going to be what the children that we raise are. So we better do everything we can. Take that legacy and to carry it forward to a generation to come. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I've preached my message. It's a good one for people raising kids to listen to. Raising kids, going to raise kids, done raising kids. God's dealt with your heart. You ought to meet him in this altar. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his precious name.